As we do every week now during basketball season, we welcome on Matthew Postens joining us here, leading the basketball coverage at heartlandcollegesports.com. I'm Pete Mundo, and there is no shortage of stuff happening right now on the hardwood across the Big 12. And, of course, the I think it's the best storyline in college basketball this season, and that was Chris Beard's return to Texas Tech on Tuesday night. Let's just start big picture there, Matthew. Great to have you here. Uh, did that live up to the hype? Yeah, I think it did. Uh, it, you know, I made this point in the piece I wrote after the game. It, it, it felt like an, an old-school Big East game from yes. the 1980s. You know, it, there, was a, there was hate. There was animosity. There was a, an emotionally charged environment. There was a sellout crowd. You had two teams that were playing very good basketball. Granted, they were playing for third place in the conference, but you know, that really kind of took a secondary backseat to everything that was happening. You know, it, for Tech, it was almost like group therapy. I mean, when you think <laughs> about it, yes. Chris Beard left 10 months ago, and they've had nowhere to direct their anger, frustration, hurt, pain, whatever you want to call it, until Tuesday night. And they poured all of that out during the game on Tuesday night and really in the lead-up before that game with everything that happened on Monday night before the shoot-around and with Texas coming to town. It just it, – it's it, – it really kind of – I don't want to say put Lubbock on the map because, you know, Chris Beard did great work with that program before he left. But I think people now have a different – a different understanding of what basketball is like in Lubbock after that game. Now, I, I, and I totally agree. Uh, I mean, we saw some of the national folks giving credit to the crowd there in Lubbock and how intense, but also appropriate they were. When you look yeah. at, at that, Matthew, and kind of how uh, that night went from a Texas Tech perspective, I couldn't help but think to myself, boy, if, if Joey McGuire ever gets this thing going in football, those are going to be wild games too because this fan base is uh, is salivating for that. Yeah, and I don't want to, you know, I went to the Kentucky game a couple years ago when they, when they hosted Kentucky for the Big 12 SEC Challenge. The crowd that night, wasn't quite as amped up as the crowd on Tuesday night, but it was they were it was pretty similar. So they've got a great following now for basketball, and if they could ever translate in, that into football with the kind of program that Joey McGuire wants to build there at Tech, I mean, this is a guy who has tremendous connections within Texas high school football. Uh, it's his first head coaching job, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how he handles that from a, a Division One perspective. But you know, he's already made good inroads in recruiting. Uh, he's made a priority to not just recruit high school football players in Texas, but to recruit transfer portal players that, you know, are from the state of Texas, maybe went to other schools and are looking to come back. So it's going to be really interesting. But, yeah, they're they're craving a, a team that won like the Mike Leach teams back in the 1990s and or, or I'm sorry, the 2000s. And, yeah, if he can ever get it back in the rail where they're winning eight, nine, maybe ten games a year, it's going to be kind of lit in Lubbock, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I could not agree more. Now, I got on, Matthew, earlier in the show. I got on ESPN. How this game is not on ESPN uh, regular. It was on ESPN, too. It started off on ESPN News because – the Michigan State-Maryland game went long. I mean, it's just, that's a disgrace. You had Kansas and Iowa State on ESPN in the 6 o'clock slot. It could have rolled right into this. Instead, they put on the Iron Bowl. They put on Alabama-Auburn basketball. And I know Auburn's number one, but, I mean, give me a break. No one in that state cares about college basketball. Uh, and, and this was a huge moment for this sport. I think the sport desperately needs this. It's gotten kind of sterile 
You mentioned the 80s Big East feel, and I think that's entirely accurate. What is ESPN thinking? Yeah, I don't know how they make those decisions. I mean, when you get into these Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday windows, they've got rolling games from 6 to 8 to 10, and, and I know this because I'm watching basketball most nights. So how they decide who gets up ends up on ESPN and ESPN2, I'm not really sure, but you know, it, it, it made no sense to me to have it on ESPN2, uh, you know, that kind of game. I mean, they knew what it was going to be going in, you know, mm-hmm. you know, 10 months ago, they knew what it was going to be going in. And, and no disrespect, like I said, to Alabama and Auburn, Auburn is the number one team in the country and they will certainly get preferential treatment because of that. But, you know, they knew what this atmosphere was going to be like and why you would have four teams from the same conference on different channels back to back that it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I was kind of surprised they didn't have Fran Fraschilla and John Shambi on that game. They were on one of the big 12 games on Monday. Uh, I, I would have thought they would have had the two of them on that game. And, and, and Neely and Spatola did a great job. I thought, calling the game but I was surprised that they didn't have their number one big 12 crew on that game as well yeah I I just I don't understand um you know you got two teams sitting there in the rankings and that drama around it the sport needs it I think it desperately needs it Matthew I mean with conference realignment it's hurt some of the basketball rivalries even think of you know Duke UNC that's not what it was even five years ago right now the Big East breaking up, uh, Big East basketball. I love Big East basketball as a Villanova guy, but I admit it's not what it was pre-realignment. Um, and then the ACC as well. It's just, I don't know, are you, are you with me there where the sport needs moments like this? And if it's not being promoted by the people who pay these conferences for the rights to air the games, then who who's who's going to do it? Yeah, we, we definitely need more games like this. I mean, you know, we – you know, this rivalry will go away to some degree once yes. Texas goes to the SEC. I mean, I, they, they're making noise about playing each other every year in football and basketball, but, you know, after the other night, I'm not entirely sure that's going to happen. Um, you know, the rivalries are kind of going away, and, you know, it's going to be up to the Big 12 once they're fully reconstituted, and, you know, well, it looks like it might be 2023 once they add all four teams. It's going to be up to the conference to – you know, find ways to cultivate rivalries, whether that be going to a two-division format for basketball and having those divisions play each other twice and doing crossover games once or finding ways to continue doing the Big 12 SEC and Big East challenges and, and finding ways to cultivate rivalries there. But, you know, you know, I completely agree with you about the rivalry aspect of this. The way that realignment has gone the last 20 years, it serves other interests besides allowing Texas and Texas A&M to continue to play their rivalry game every year unless they're in the same conference, which they will be in a few years. But it's it's tough now in college basketball. It really is because a lot of those rivalries that we grew up with, are, they, they aren't quite what they were back in the day. And, you know, I think in in football, that's okay. I mean, it's, it's not ideal. We all long for the, I was going to say, Big 8. Uh, but even just, you know, the old Big 12 and some of those rivalries that are gone, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and whatnot. But I, I think this part of the country is so obsessed with football and college football, they're able to get past it uh, because of the love of their team and love of the sport. Uh, that's not the case in basketball. And you're seeing a sport that's that's becoming more and more of a one-month sport. I mean, you know, our audience, the diehard audience, they're there. They're following this league every single week. But the casual fan that could flip on anything on a Monday night, how do you get them to turn on you know, Big Monday, Big 12, key matchup. How do you get them to do it? And I think that's something that 
the sport is is grappling with right now. And I was thinking about this too, Matthew. I'd like to get your thoughts. The transfer portal. One thing that came out of that Texas Texas Tech game was that you know they they showed the starting lineups there at one point, and the average age. I mean, you had guys from 21 to 24 years old. I don't think anyone was younger than 21, and there was guys up to 24 years old on that court starting that game between Texas and Texas Tech. The transfer portal, I think, also makes it harder for fans because you're turning over these teams every single year. In football, it's easier to deal with. You know the star players. They're probably going to be there. In basketball, that turnover may actually hurt the sport. What do you think about that? I I think there's potential for that. I mean, you think about Tech, they lost their leading scorer. Granted, he went to the NBA uh, and Mac McClung. But, you know, who, by the way, was a transfer from Georgetown, right? (laughs) So, by the way, it was a transfer from Georgetown. So, you know, UT turned over their entire front court. All three of those guys went to the NBA. All three of those guys were homegrown. Chris Beard replaced them with transfers. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see over the next couple of years how much either the transfer portal surges or settles down. Because I think kids are going to have to start making more conscious decisions about, A, who recruits them when they're in high school and where they go, and, and being more mindful of that, going to a place where, you know, they're not just going to sit there for a year and, and, and then transfer away because things don't, quote, unquote, go their way or some other reason that has nothing to do with maybe things that happen in their life. I tend to think in the next couple of years, the transfer portal will settle down a little bit. But you're right. You know, Texas Tech turned over nine guys. Uh, TCU turned over nine guys. Iowa State turned over nine guys. Those are completely different teams than they were a year ago. Jamie Dixon's last two recruiting classes, with the exception of Mike Miles, are gone. So there is that, there is that element of continuity that um, you're losing because of the transfer portal. But the upside for a team like Texas Tech is – they took in all those brand-new players, and they may be a better team than they were last year, and they may go farther in the NCAA tournament. So it means a lot to that fan base, even though it may not mean as much to people around the country from a national standpoint. I agree there, Matthew. And um, we're going to continue the conversation. But first, please do leave a rating, review, subscribe to this show. Uh, it's a great way to support this show. It takes you 30 seconds to a minute. Leave that rating and review on iTunes, and then send me a screenshot to Pete Mundo, M-U-N-D-O, at heartlandcollegesports.com, and I'll get you a free Heartland College Sports koozie in the mail. It's my way of saying thank you for taking out a moment and leaving that rating and review. And the only way to get one, by the way, is by, yes, the rating and review on iTunes. So go there, send me the screenshot to Pete Mundo at heartlandcollegesports.com, and we'll get you all hooked up. Appreciate it, guys. We're continuing the conversation with Matthew Postens. I'm Pete Mundo. HeartlandCollegeSports.com is, of course, the site. He is our lead college basketball, Big 12 basketball writer, doing a great job each and every day on the site. Men and women, by the way. So we're uh, keeping up more so this season than ever before on Big 12 women's hoops. Uh, Matthew, let's continue with uh, basketball here, of course. This conference, where it's at right now is, you know, we got about a month left in the regular season here. What what are you looking to see over this next month in terms of how seeding goes for the NCAA tournament? How many Big 12 teams actually do get into the big dance? What will determine that over the next month? Well, I think, you know, if you, if you look at bracketology and you look at, you know, Joe Lenardi and Jerry Palm, I think they, they both seem to be in agreement that they feel like there's seven solid teams in the tournament right now from the Big 12. I think the real question is, you know, whether a team like West Virginia, who really feels like a bubble team right now, can maybe sneak in and be that eighth team. 
the the advantage that West Virginia has is they still have a good overall record. They're thirteen and eight overall going into this weekend. And, you know, I think they're good enough to win 16, 17, maybe 18 games uh, by the end of the season. And I think, you know, given the quality of the conference and given, you know, how you know, even though it's a it's a it's a rock fight every night, they because it's a rock fight every night, they all kind of help each other in that respect. Nobody's net. Uh, one of the tools they use to determine the field really goes down because of those losses. So. Um, West Virginia is really the team I'm kind of watching right now. Can they find enough interior scoring to be more competitive? Can Sean McNeil get out of this this rut that he seems to have been in the last couple of weeks where he's having good games but not great games? Will Taz Sherman be okay after the concussion against Baylor? Um, they've got a lot of question marks, uh, and I think they they Bob Huggins is the type of coach that will make the adjustments that are needed. But they're starting to reach a point now with, you know, about, you know, 10 conference games left where they've, they've got to start pushing the buttons now and starting to make a move toward, you know, getting closer to 20 wins and, and hopefully solidifying a spot in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, the other team I'm looking at or a couple teams at the bottom of the standings in the Big 12. I mean, it's crazy because you've got half this league, Matthew, is three and six or worse. Uh, in conference play, mm-hmm. I mean, now it's it's like you said, it's a dogfight every night. But still, three and six or worse, you'd say, all right, how are these teams going to make the big dance? But the Big Twelve is just that good this year. Iowa State coming off that loss to Kansas the other night. Um, some fans may worry that this team hit its peak. Are they really as good as we thought they were? I mean, I look at their stretch here. They've already played KU and Texas Tech twice. They've got a stretch here of now. There's no easy stretch in the Big Twelve. But West Virginia, K-State, TCU, Oklahoma, West Virginia, K-State, Oklahoma State. I mean, that's their stretch of unranked teams to really get back in this thing. Not that they're going to win the Big 12, but they probably got to get a few more wins, obviously, to feel good about the big dance. What do you think about the Cyclones and, and where they've been and where they're going? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly favorable from a competitive standpoint. You know, anytime you've got a stretch there where you don't have to play any ranked teams, uh, yeah, I think the the key for Iowa State, I think as long as they get to 20 wins, I think they get in. And remember, you know, if you're sitting there on 19 wins and you get to the Big 12 tournament and you win a game, that counts too. So that that's helpful from the standpoint of solidifying yourself in the NCAA tournament. Right now, I think the last bracketology I saw, they were a seven seed. So, I, you know, it still feels like they're they're very solidly in. But this is an opportunity. You know, I made this point with the Kansas women. They were playing Oklahoma State back-to-back and playing TCU after that. And those are two teams that are under 500 in the conference. And I said, you know, Kansas feels like an NCAA tournament team for the women, but you've got to collect those wins when you get the chance. And Kansas has been doing that. They beat Oklahoma State back-to-back, and they've got TCU next. This is a chance for Iowa State to collect a few wins that will help them solidify their standing in the NCAA tournament. And for them, it could be the difference between being a – a six or a seven seed or being a 10 or 11 seed. So it's an important stretch for them to win a few games that they should win if they're the team we think they are. Yeah, I could not agree more. Now, uh, as you look now to the top of the standings, Kansas Baylor, of course, they're meeting this weekend in Lawrence. Uh, Both these teams are banged up and have been banged up, Matthew, right? So I I think Mm -hmm. it's kind of an interesting assessment to see who kind of weathers this storm and this stretch the best based on the injuries both teams have been dealing with? Yeah, both both teams have some some issues. You know, Baylor played West Virginia. They didn't have L.J. Cryer or Adam Flagler. 
they had two scholarship guards for that game. They had to play. They had to start Dale Bonner, who was a Division two transfer and is a great player, but is not a player that Scott Drew had leaned on previously for a lot of playing time. You know, Kansas obviously had uh, issues on Tuesday night. You know, Agbaji had to sit out due to COVID. Um, it's clear McCormick's not 100%. Remy Martin is still fighting that injury from last month. And Bill Self said earlier this week that, you know, Martin's going to sit for a week or two. So it, it becomes a very interesting game now because which team is deeper, Baylor or Kansas? I think all things considered, I think Kansas is a slightly deeper team. In fact, I think it's the deepest team Bill Self's had in five years. And he's going to be leaning, both teams will be leaning on that depth. But if Kansas wins this game, uh, it'll be because they, they get more out of their bench and more out of their depth than Baylor does. It's a, it's a really interesting stretch. And I think hopefully for both teams, it's a short-term stretch because it doesn't sound like any of these injuries are significant. Like they will keep them out for a significant amount of time. And obviously with Agbaji, hopefully he's back soon from, uh, from COVID. TCU, is that the most surprising team right now in this league from a positive perspective, or are you saying, all right, pump the brakes, two of their wins are against Oklahoma, not that Oklahoma's terrible, but do you need to see more on the Horn Frogs? No, I, I'm surprised at where they are. You know, they, they had as much turnover as Texas Tech did. I mean, they had to turn over nine or ten guys because of the transfer portal. And, and going into January, they looked like Mike Miles and Emmanuel Miller, and that was about it. You know, those were their two primary offensive weapons, and now we're in February, and Chuck O'Bannon's gotten more consistent uh, in that LSU game. He was the reason they won because he hit three threes in a row and scored 11 points in the first four minutes of that game to give them that big lead that they held on to. And then Damian Baugh, who transferred in, he's become more of a pass-first guard. He's taking his shot more. He's driving to the basket more. He had 20 points in that win over Oklahoma. Uh, they've, they've really come together in a way that I didn't quite see going into conference play because they had just been kind of inconsistent in non-conference, they missed a couple of weeks because they had to take a COVID pause, too. They started conference play a week late, but they're starting to gather some steam and come together now to the point where, you know, they might get back to the NCAA tournament for the first time in four years. Yeah, I, and, you know, I got to be honest, I didn't know if the game had passed by Jamie Dixon, not, not literally the game of basketball, but just, you know, how everything has changed uh, from a recruiting perspective and everything else. And I think back to his heyday at Pitt, and I say, did he kind of lose his touch here the last couple of years? But it seems like what he – and, you know, there was all that talk last year, the last couple of years, about, you know, guys in the locker room and how that team was was doing behind the scenes. But it feels like, at least for the moment, uh, a lot of that has fallen by the wayside, and Jamie Dixon has kind of em- uh, embraced what you're talking about, and that is just having a massive amount of turnover in today's college basketball landscape. What, what do you make of Jamie Dixon and kind of the uh, progress he's made? Well, you know, he talked about it last March after they got eliminated from the Big 12 tournament. He said he knows the direction college basketball is going. He sees it. He understands it. Uh, I think he kind of lamented it a little bit just because, like you said, he was highly successful at Pitt, and he was very good at recruiting and developing players. But uh, he's he's made the adjustment. And some coaches are making the adjustment quicker than others. Mark Adams made the adjustment very quickly because of his junior college experience. He basically coached for a decade in junior college where you turn over two-thirds of your roster every year. So he he really had an understanding of how to use the transfer portal to build a good team. You know, that's not a skill that Jamie Dixon had in his toolbox. He's had to kind of work on that. And uh, he he did a good job. He, he went out and he got guys that were uh, stars at mid-major schools but were looking to prove themselves at a high-major school, you know, guys that fit into what he wanted to do on the offensive side. 
I think more importantly, they're playing much better defense than they did last year. Um, they have a much different makeup on the defensive side. I don't think they've changed a whole lot in terms of what they wanted to do defensively. I just think he has a better set of guys to execute what he wants to do. So, you know, you look at the Oklahoma game, they did a much better job on them defensively uh, than they did last year when they played Oklahoma. So I, I think that's where the improvement scene and, and, you know, with Dixon, you know, some guys are going to make the adjustment. Some guys are not going to make the adjustment and leave the game or get fired. And I think Jamie Dixon is the guy who wants to continue to coach at his alma mater for a long time. So he's making the adjustment. Yeah, he is. We got a minute, Matthew. So I, I may ask you this every week for the next four or five weeks. How many big 12 teams end <laughs> up in the NCAA turn? How many t- big 12 teams end up in the big dance? I think for right now, seven. And part of the reason is TCU and West Virginia have to play each other twice at the end of the season. So one of them end up, may end up eliminating the other. Okay, I like that. He's looking ahead, analyzing the schedule. There you go. Matthew Postens on Heartland College Sports Weekly, part of heartlandcollegesports.com, your independent Big 12 digital media outlet, doing a great job each and every day covering this league, men's and women's basketball. Matthew, good stuff. We'll talk to you next week, my man. Hey, you bet. Hit subscribe, leave the rating, review, and I'll get you a free Heartland College Sports koozie. When you do it, send me a screenshot of your rating and review to Pete Mundo, M-U-N-D-O, at heartlandcollegesports.com. Thanks to you guys. You're the best. Can't thank you enough for being here, and we'll talk to you soon. Pete Mundo on heartlandcollegesports.com. Take care.